The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Tēnā koutou, Duncan Greve here. Thank you so much for listening to The Fold in 2023. Taking a little break over summer and would like to sort of bring you some of the, my favourite conversations from throughout the year. So uh, please enjoy this while I take a short break and we'll be back mid-late January. Uh, here's one of my favourites, Matewa. No mai hoki mai ki a the fault in mihine ko Duncan Greve tokungwa. My guest today is Noelle McCarthy, who, man, she's so many things. Uh, she's, I reckon we must be a very similar age. We certainly came up in a similar way, moved in similar circles uh, in our early 20s. Uh, she, you know, she recounts very uh, affectingly and, and vividly and grand her, her memoir, her fantastic memoir, which which came out last year. She came over from Ireland, was working as a waitress at, at Prego and desperate to get into the media and so took a job or basically volunteered at BFM during a time when BFM had a huge, a real almost an outsized cultural power, even though its actual cultural power was very high. Um, during an era where there were a lot of very big, super talented personalities, but also this, you know, it was a culture that's kind of unimaginable today and she, she gets into that. Um, from there, she moved to News Talk ZB and RNZ, really like just the opposite of BFM in so many ways, but but she talks about all the things she gained, gained from all that. Uh, uh, she, you know, basically she was living almost these two lives she was this kind of uh kind of cool society kind of it girl who was in the papers during a time when uh as as Shane Carey talks about a few weeks ago and, and Noel makes reference to this there was a kind of a kind of vicious gossip kind of coverage culture in, in our papers and ways that, again, uh, the, the scenes in, in Grand there are pretty pretty searing. Uh, she ends up getting sober and uh, starting a business called Bird of Paradise, which is, uh, you know, I, I think uh, one of the first and certainly one of the most important podcast companies in this country that her and her husband, John Daniel, who's hugely talented and cool uh, writer and podcaster, just just amazing intellect in, in his own right, um, which which they run. Uh, and 
you know, they made getting better. The the Emma um, Aspen is year in a life of a Māori medical student, which, uh, which which she's talked about on this podcast as well. Um, but you know, she's just basically a person who's had this twenty year career in New Zealand media as an immigrant from from Ireland, who's had to kind of figure out her place in it. Uh, had amazing success across multiple different mediums and really but done, done it on her terms and, and figured out a way to be in this country and uh, to create products that feel really kind of beautifully cared for um, that you know I think is it's just a, it's a, a really kind of rare and special thing uh, the latest one of those is Dear Jane, which is a podcast on the spin-off podcast network, which is out any day now if it is not already out. Um, Noel is the host, uh, the writer, and you know the, the driving force behind it. Uh, it is, it is, as she says, it's a survivor story. It tells the story of. Uh, a very young woman, a 13-year-old who enters into a relationship that quickly turns sexual with a, a youth group leader um, about how that could happen and about the echoes of that throughout her life and then leads to her kind of uh, basically co confronting that in, in every sense of the word. Uh, it's it's an amazing podcast. I, I think it's it's probably one of the most ambitious um, and affecting things we've ever done. Uh, and yeah, hearing Noel talk about how it's made, you really understand just, just how much thought and care went into it. Um, and yeah, so that's that's where we end. But we, we go through her whole career. It's, you know, she's, it's a reason why she's had such a great career in, in broadcasting. She's a tremendously fun and entertaining speaker. And uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoy that. This is Noel McCarthy on The Fold. Kia ora Noel, welcome to the fall. Oh, kia ora Duncan. It's so good to be here. Oh, I'm so I'm so excited about this. We've we've been talking uh, off mic about this this era, which I actually want to dig into, which is where we both got our starts, which was a kind of a specific era in in Auckland, kind of ulti media, I guess. But when it was, it had the scale and an impact that meant it really felt like something. Uh, you know, just read a couple of chapters of, of Grand that described this in just the most incredibly vivid way. You know, so you, you know you're working at Pray, Prego and kind of walking up those steps to to BFM. It's just this very specific era of kind of Auckland cool and partying and the, this kind of whole soup of opportunity and and risk and uh and and careers that are built out of that whole soup um just talk about how you know you you come in very much an outsider and and kind of claw your way inside i was a waitress um as as you mentioned i was a waitress in a restaurant on ponsonby road and I was in New Zealand, so this was this would be two thousand and three, and I was in New Zealand on a um, working holiday visa. And at a certain point, maybe about six months in, I decided that I was going to change my masters. I was registered for a masters in nineteenth um, century Gothic literature, 
So obviously the employment prospects, <laughs> you know, were golden <laughs> on on that one. And I decided that I'd change to a journalism qualification in Ireland, that I'd apply for it. And in order to um, get into the course, you had to have some experience. You had to have some work experience. And um, Simon Pound, host of Business is Boring, was also working in the restaurant. He was um, behind the bar. And Simon said to me, I think I was just chatting to him and saying I needed to get some work experience. He said, you should go up to BFM. You know, they um, they take volunteers. They I, take walk-ins. They, take, they literally <laughs> take walk-ins. He, he was saying, I do it every Thursday. And I did. You know, I walked in and I went to reception and talked to the woman on reception and got a, a form. Like they give you a, a form and wrote, you know, filled it out. And it was wild. You know, the idea that you could just walk in the door and suddenly, I think they gave me a ring about a week later and I went up and um, did the news for the breakfast show. So it was Hugh Sunday's breakfast show at the time and doing the news involved getting the Herald that was delivered to the door. We had one laptop, I think the news laptop, which had a cord and the cord went from the newsroom (laughs) into the studio and you'd pull up the um, you'd pull up the websites on Internet Explorer or the BBC website, CNN, whatever, and kind of just choose the stories, like write down, rewrite whatever took your fancy. And um, I think a few weeks uh, after I started writing the news, the newsreader wasn't there in the morning. They hadn't. Um, That's a common problem. It was difficult. It was tough hours, Duncan. (laughs) It was like, you know, 6 a.m. starts. We didn't Um, make them easy on ourselves either, you know. Yeah, that's a whole other side of the pod, isn't it? Um, And, yeah, I got to read the news. And I think, you know, there was a huge novelty value with the accent and, you know, with me sort of being a blow-in at that point. You know, I remember Roger Perry sort of using a bit of my voice on a track. You know, he was like, can I have some of that? I was like, sure. (laughs) You know, the Irish accent. Um, um, and that was the beginning, you know, and I ended up being at BFM for, I think it was just over three years. I ended up working there as the news and editorial director was the, um, was the, the official title. And I talk about that in grand, you know, it was the first time I'd had a business card that was, and probably the last. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, the great thing about being news and ed director and working on The Breakfast Show was that I got to do the political interviews. So at the time it was Helen Clark. Um, who I tried to call, um, I think I called her Prime Minister the first time that I interviewed her and she said, call me Helen. Like she meant it, (laughs) so I did. And uh, Don Brash was the leader of the opposition and then replaced by John Key. So, you know, to go from like, have been been being a waitress and before that a student in Ireland to you know I, try, I remember trying to say it to my dad in Ireland to explain to him I'd made him a CD of my Helen Clark you know Monday morning interviews and he's just like you know what are you doing you like, seem like you're making it up yeah like, yeah well, and, and, I mean and that's kind of one of the things that was so sort of electric and, and special about BFM in that era and that it had a big consequential audience such that it could rationally asked for time of the, from the Prime Minister. It was and very smart, I think, of Labour and National to decide to do that. You know, obviously they, they were very canny about realising exactly, as you say, the reach of that audience and the importance of, you know, of, of being, of having exposure on the station. Yeah, absolutely. But but also that it could go to someone who was, was so <laughs> fresh off the boat in every sense of the word. Do, do, you, do you want to just sort of 
recall a bit the the sort of atmosphere at the time? You know, there it was. It seems to me that there was this this amazing kind of combination. There were just so many people sort of listening and wanting to go to its parties and who had some tangential role, almost all of them unpaid. Um, there was kind of a boys club that, that I was going to say out. a lot of the women unpaid. But, um, you know, when I think about it, Duncan, I it's Narnia that comes to mind. You know, when you push the fur coat out of the way and you're suddenly in the back of the wardrobe and it's a whole other world. Like, I remember the first time hearing Paul Casserly's Wire you know, just realizing sort of the talent that was at the station. And then Havoc, of course, Mikey Havoc was on air. Um, a trailer with a cage, Jeremy Wells was there. You know, Steve Simpson and Jeremy used to do the Saturday special on Saturday morning. Bill Curtin was a program mm. director, incredible, you know, TV maker. Um, and I knew nothing. I, I cannot overstate how little I knew about broadcasting. I really, you know, the radio was the thing in the corner of the room in the kitchen when I was growing up. I went up to BFM because Simon said they took volunteers. And if he had said it was a newspaper that took volunteers, I would have gone there. You know, I had absolutely no affinity with broadcasting. But to suddenly be in the middle of this circus, you know, because it was in so many ways, you know, and seeing someone like Camilla Martin, who was a breakfast host, you know, during my time there, who I think Milla was like 20, maybe we had her 21st as a BFM gig. So she would have been 20. Totally. And just electric, you know, like an electric and kind of really memorable broadcaster from the get go, funny, knew her music, you know, for someone like me who like never even listened to the radio besides the news. This was extraordinary. And and while you were there, it's funny because I was actually thinking the other day about the Exclusive Brethren story, (laughs) which is, you know, it's not inconceivable. That swung the 2005 election, uh, which was was so tightly poised at the time. This is when Don Brash sort of casually revealed uh, that he had been in talks, which had well, he was quite angry. Like he was quite. I had to re-listen to the transcript in order to write when I was writing Grand. Yeah, you know, and I I remember. But you broke like, the story. I mean, this is the point. Well, I asked him. All I did was ask him the question. Yeah, but, and that's <laughs> all you ever do to break a story. Come on. And it's true. But again, it goes back to your point about the fact that you know the political leaders deemed it important enough to make their weekly appearance. And I guess what I hadn't realised was that obviously the pressure was building on Brash at that point because as you say, you know, things were on a knife edge was coming up to the election and, you know, he was at the point where for one reason or another just decided, I've had it, I'm going to say it. We didn't even know what you had. What we had. Yeah. You know, like, and that's not to, I don't want to diminish the kind of the effort involved because I have never, I think, in all my life studied as hard as I studied New Zealand in that time because I knew nothing, as mm. you say. Like, I, w- I was a blow in. I, I just arrived. We used to get the listener every week delivered to BFM and I would just it was Finley McDonald's era in the listener and I would just like you know read the listener from from cover to cover and sort of you know read Gordon Campbell just try to understand what this what was going on you know and and, you know do do the prep in the morning but you know anyone would have asked him that question because it was the question you know, we just ha- we got the slot as well. He, he'd come on at half seven or seven seven o'clock. Well, I think, it, but you know, not to you know, I, I, I 
it's true that people would have asked the question. It's also about the atmosphere that you create that probably is quite disarming, you know, to, to Well, I remember Camilla like asking that. him, like, if he, if a woman who breastfed her dog should get the benefit. And, you know, he gave it a good go at answering that quite seriously. And we then used it as a sting for the breakfast show, you know. So uh, I think there's something in that. A beautiful era. So, and... and the, the crazy thing was, they can't like actually BFM to Newstalk ZB, which sounds utterly psychotic as a as a trick to make, is not completely without reason. I mean, Marcus Lush is another who who has made it, but to make it so swiftly, you know, from essentially the most kind of anarchic radio station in the country to to its most kind of naturally conservative, uh, how'd that go? Yeah. Bill Francis had put out uh, an autobiography and I was interviewing him about it for BFM. And I'd been at BFM for about three years at that stage. And I guess I was sort of champing at the bit. You know, I, I, I did want to I was doing a wire show, which, you know, to this day, I think is, is a fantastic format for anyone who wants to get their head around broadcast journalism, you know, because you're just doing live interviews, you know, on the day, every day. But I was doing a wire and I was interviewing Bill and, you know, I, th I think I, I gave him a bit of a poke about the fact there weren't that many women in the storied history of, of Talkback in, um, in New Zealand. Besides, there's more now, but this was 20 years ago. And he said, you know, why don't you give it a go? You know, come over. And of course, like I was doing Midnight to Dawn, which is its own thing. Like that's not, I don't think it's necessarily representative of the station or of anything but itself, really. Yeah. Well, especially know. because back then, listening to that or engaging with it was one of the, you know, there wasn't a lot around then. Like the internet was kind of useless. That's right. You know, <laughs> there was a relatively small amount of total media created, this live product that was weirdly entertaining. Like if you ever came across Oh, when it. you listen, I mean, when you listen, even now when I listen to Talkback, you know, when I listen to Marcus, you know, who is, uh, you know, absolutely up there in terms of practitioners, you know, who makes it seem so effortless to create the sense of community and something celebratory without any cringe. You know, it's it is really just like the best and weirdest of people. I think for me, you know, in my 20s when I did it, I didn't know how much I didn't know. I'd gone from, as you say, like this sort of very progressive liberal bastion of um, student media into having to fill five and a half hours of live radio every night. You know, it was it was a baptism of fire, I think. And, you know, when you're spending that much time with people, because that's what it is, you know, it's spending time with people, you sort of you're almost a relative. <laughs> like, you know, you're just and, and, and there's a kind of a there's a pressure because, you know, you don't know misery until you're an overnight talkback host with an empty board. Right. Like I, yeah. I, I do remember, I mean, in my it's a, there's a very surreal quality to those memories that I have of of talkback. And I didn't write about it in grand. You know, I want I want to go back to it at some point because it was so surreal. Like I remember just sitting there some nights watching the TV, which would be on on mute and talking, like narrating the television <laughs> to people and they would ring me and we'd be watching the same thing or 
having that sort of weird communal experience through the radio. Fucking my heart hurt. But they hated me as well. You know, there were people who just absolutely hated me and they wanted to talk about Ireland. And I was really um, self-conscious about that because I just wanted to be accepted as a New Zealander. So it was terrible, you know, it was a terrible sort of... (laughs) disconnect but when I look back now and I think about that time and I think about the things that it taught me it's been it was so useful like I didn't do it for long I think I lasted about six months and then you know I quietly had a breakdown and was like I can't do this anymore um and luckily you know had something else to do so that was good but it was um it was formative actually from the you go to, to RNZ where you spent quite some time and you know, re- reading back on the way you recounted in Grand, it seems like this kind of combination of like this is an extraordinary job and it comes at a time which is just incredibly mm. challenging for you. You've, you know, you've got, you know, like the, 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 these two things don't seem to be able to work together and ultimately that that sort of comes due. Do you, what, what was your... You know, just tell me about your your sort of that that run at RNZ and and where you're leading this life as a kind of, you know, like almost like an Auckland version of an it girl. <laughs> like you, you're like you're so in the scene and this big figure there, but also have to work at what is then a much more even now it's relatively state institution. Back then it was a wholly different yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. and to try and make those things make sense together. Such a tension, you know. And again, I didn't necessarily see this until I wrote Grant because I, I was um, hired at RNZ to do Summer Noel, which was I didn't name it, but you know, I but whoever uh, did is very pleased with themselves, uh, um, and it works. And it worked, yeah. And and I mean, it was just. So it was an amazing format because, again, interviews, you know, like just get and we could interview whoever we wanted. Well, I think I was on someone. Yeah, we loved it. Once. Yeah, we've talked. <laughs> we've time. talked on many. And and the other thing was, of course, it could be as long as you wanted these lengthy interviews that, you know, um, I, I started doing and finding, you know, the revelation at RNZ was that the audience did have an appetite for that. You know, they would stay with you for 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 a lengthy interview. And also, um you know, it's an extremely smart audience. It's It, it was an older audience, but I, I had sort of experienced that in one sense at ZB, but this was different again. And the joy was getting to do stuff. You know, I wasn't just talking. I'd have to prepare for an interview, you know, like it was, you could, call up Joyce Carol Oates if you wanted and because she'd see, you know, oh, New Zealand, I haven't talked to them, I'll I'll do it. You know, there was a lot of stuff we got, I think, simply because we asked for it and, and then you you find yourself in a situation where you need to rise to that and, and that was, like, that was such a joy and then because I was there and because I was learning, I was getting the opportunity to fill in on these other shows, you know, these big shows, big live radio shows. But, you know, at the same time as as I talk about in Grand, you know, in my personal life, there's a whole heap of other stuff happening, which is that my drinking, which, you know, had been sort of broadly speaking, manageable up to a point. I mean, without wanting to sound too judgmental, like media has been historically, I think, a very forgiving industry for personal foibles. Well, uh, yeah, and, and it's a real boozy industry too, you know? It's funny, you know, now when I when I watch films like or TV shows like The Morning Show, you know, any situation where there are sort of boundaryless workspaces, I, I, I find I can really 
you know, between BFM and in the intervening years, I can really relate to that, you know, and that combination of having like microphones and lots of alcohol around, I think is explosive yeah and can be and you know I'd come from that really and that's not to judge anyone or you know these are different times this pre me too you know we have had a seismic reckoning I think around this stuff and are continuing to have but going back to 2003 2004 2005 and as you say Auckland you know the city that it was the scene that it had navigating all of that, I think, was really, um, you know, it was really challenging. And at the same time, then showing up for work and doing this very sort of grown up job. Well, and then the, the, there was a pressure to part of doing the job was also showing up and really showing out at those kind of events. And, you know, I think that, you know, you look back on it through a contemporary lens and it seems completely insane. And at the time, it just was the most natural thing in the world. Well, I say in the book, you know, like I didn't know I could say no. And, you know, it's been pointed out to me and I think this is a really good point. I think that's part of youth as well, yeah. right? You know, like you don't know. You don't know that you can push back or ask for accommodations or just say no. Well, but but I mean, part of, you, can, you, you knew you could say no, but there was always someone right next to you who was just as good and just as keen. That's right. Because the media was, and this is a thing that I think we don't really understand in the contemporary media, is that opportunity was very rare. That the, the pipes were small and the numbers keen to get through them were, were comparatively massive. And you know, there was no alternative valve was very difficult to start your own fucking that's right content like being a content maker wasn't necessary you needed a gig you needed a gig you needed needed to be and there was a whole ecosystem around that and supporting that but also feeding off it yes you know and i thought i I really appreciated like you had an acknowledgement i think from shane curry on on this podcast about that whole gossip side of things that you know when i look back on what those sort of uh, those years were like in terms of having that and you know even having such big gossip supplements in Auckland what were we all talking about <laughs> I know well I, I wouldn't mind talking about that because there was and I'm glad that Shane kind of acknowledges it now but I think for some people that's too little many years too late that the the particular style and almost gleeful nature of the gossip columns or the reporting on when someone slipped, um, you know, which you 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 know, because you were such a kind of this very fast rising star in multiple aspects of the media at the time, you know, you were sort of. Oh, you know, you were part of the media, mm. but also edited. And, and a lot of know. this is part and parcel of media, right? Like, yeah, you, you know, you this goes the with the, with, with the, it, it is the gig, right? It but is it the deal. But it must have made the thing very, very difficult because most people, you, you, you know, you have a moment like yeah. that. It's not news. Well, I guess I just saw a lot of power imbalances as well. You know, the fact is, like, for all the, the glamour or how cool it looked, I was a contractor. You know, I was a contractor. I had no half a million. I had, yeah, you know, I had absolutely no protection. No, I didn't even have holiday pay or sick pay. Like, and that factors into it too. Mm. You know, and I think that's not something that is necessarily clear or was spoken about on the at the time. And I mean, you mentioned like unpaid work at BFM. I loved when that became an issue a few years back. You know, you had a new cohort because BFM had always run on sort of 
volley. It's only volley actually labor. viable in that way, but it yes. needs to figure out how to kind of make that thing work as hard for the volunteers as it does, right. does for the station And protect itself. their interests because I saw, I mean, we didn't even, I, I think, no burnout. You know, we didn't even know that concept. Or and power par- imbalance. And part of that is because we loved it. As, like, I'll speak from the eye. I loved it. I would have worked there for free. I did work there for free. I would have worked a- in other places for free because it is such a good opportunity and it's such good work. You know, yeah. there's a thrill from live broadcasting that you really can't. It's very hard. Trust me. Like, you know, it's very hard to get your kicks, you know, anything that that lives up to that in any other way. So I want to talk, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to, to know how to structure this because these things all overlap. But eventually this forms... Um, not the centerpiece, but it forms a decent chunk of what you revisit with with Grand, which you'd you'd written before then were a great writer, but this is this was a sort of a step change in terms of obviously the scope, but also the the sort of self scrutiny and the the beautiful style of the thing. Uh, you know, tell me how you came to decide that you wanted to put that thing and went about constructing it? Sure. I mean, I got older, which is one thing, and that's very useful, I think, for um, for self-reflection and all the rest of it. Grand came out of um, vignettes, you know, like I'd started writing in little bursts about my childhood in particular. And I found that when I was writing, the bits about my mother in particular had a different energy to them than anything else. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to live with a writer and a really brutal editor, my husband, John. And he was the first person that I showed these to. And he said, I, you know, I think you should keep going with this. And then eventually, you know, as it as I sort of generated more of it, I realized that it was a, a, a creative nonfiction memoir. And it was it was looking at that relationship between myself and my mother and ideas of sort of intergenerational trauma and legacy and things you pass on and the, the differences and the resonances between her life in Ireland in the 1970s and my life in Auckland in, you know, the early 2000s, because that was really when you know, it's, it's a recovery cliche, but that was kind of when I was hitting my rock bottom, you know, in terms of my drinking and being able to cope in general. And thinking about myself in relation to my mother was great because it allowed me to kind of, I was a bit cringy about writing memoir. I was like, you know. Oh, it, would, it would invariably involve, you'd, you'd have to get over your kind of New, very New Zealand thing of, of kind of self-loathing yes. and what, why am I deserving of Because there's a kind of, of a tacit uh, um, admission there that you think you're kind of, you know, your story is of, of significance, you're important. And nothing about this country wants anyone to ever <laughs> admit that. Yeah, I, and you know, I, I guess I've been here long enough that maybe I've internalised that. But being able to think about it in terms of broader forces as well, like societal forces, you know, and, and it was... It's a tension between personal responsibility and why we are, because I have a certain type of personality and maybe no matter what I was doing, this was going to be the story of my life. But I was interested in the experiences I'd had, especially around media, especially around radio, which I'm, I'm writing a bit more about that now. So, you know, like I won't spoil too much of it. And I'm still working out the thoughts, to be honest. But I do look at those sort of, 
boundaryless spaces and see how um you know how, how I tried to function in them and what happened to me you think about the forces that act on you and it's yeah. it's a um there's this magic and this huge pain that come, totally. comes from from that era um let's let's sort of flash forward because you know on the other side of of that uh is a bit of paradise mm. um this this but this podcasting business that you've created which has um which has become I think one of, if not New Zealand's most most significant. How did you first kind of uh, glom onto the medium, and what was it that sort of made you think, oh, this this could be my thing? I'm just writing down what you said there in case we need it for like you know um, new sponsors. Most significant. Um, what happened? Summer Noel got cancelled. So 2016, because I stayed working. You know, like I sort of stopped drinking and I was lucky enough that, you know, I was still able to work. And uh, so, you know, luckily I was a few years sober when that happens, which is kind of like, I think if you work in the media, your show's always going to get cancelled at some stage, right? So that's what happened. And I was pretty, you know, I was I was devastated at the time, but I was also um, working on a podcast because Aaron Zed had... Um, Paul Thompson, who was CEO of RNZ, had asked me to make a podcast and it was going to be the first podcast that RNZ were going to make. And it was called A Wrinkle in Time and it was about ageing. And because I'd never made a podcast and RNZ had never made a podcast, I um, rang up Radiolab, who were kind of the guys, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. And, you know, that's the great thing about working in a radio station. You know, you can call it an interview. So I got to talk to this absolutely lovely man from Radiolab and... Um, I asked him a couple of things about his process and and I said, you know, how many script drafts do you do? Because this was going to be a five part podcast that I was in the middle of making. Maybe it was six. It was a lot anyway. Um, And I said, how many drafts do you do of each script before you put it into production? And he said, 18. Whoa. 18. Can you imagine? He's like 18 drafts before they get the music in. And, you know, he's like on average. You know, you might get away with that's, 16 that's, that's, for some. That's big city shit, you know. Or 17, <laughs> you know. And um, <laughs> I was like, okay, wrote it down, 17 or 18 drafts. And then I said, you know, at the end, I said, you know, uh, who, because they're teams. I was like, how many people in your team? He's like, there's about 20 of us or whatever. You know, there's a whole wing of us over here just doing podcasts. And um, I said, you know, if you if you are hypothetically speaking in a very small team, <laughs> what do you think the most valuable member of that team? Like, what's the one person that you can't do without? I love how shameless this is. I, yeah, 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 it's all recorded as well. I think you know, I should have I should have actually kept it. Um, and I said, what's the one person on the team you cannot do without? And he he didn't you know didn't take him long to answer. He said, you need a script supervisor. You have to have a script supervisor. I was like, okay. And he, he was explaining to me actually that in America at the time, so this was 2016, that a lot of screenwriters had moved into the podcast industry, you know, because it was coming up um, and got jobs writing or overseeing scripts and writing scripts. And so I went home and, you know, I was living with a writer. <laughs> so I was like, here we go. Did you take a look? Did you take a look? And that was kind of and so after I had I think Aaron Zed had offered you know, I could I could 
keep doing producing work or whatever, but I didn't want to do that. And so when the dust settled from that, John, my husband, John Daniel, said, let's let's keep doing this. You know, let's let's keep making podcasts. And we did. So our first, I think, was a podcast about immigration, um, which was, you know, and this is kind of part of our business model. This one was um, funded by Massey University. Professor Paul Spoonley had really wanted to dig into immigration a bit more. And what we did was we negotiated a setup whereby Massey would... Um, sponsor or not sponsor but fund the podcast but it went out on RNZ who had editorial oversight so it meant you know it's still it was still sort of editorially independent but Massey were um, Ma- Massey were involved as well and um, and then we did that and had a panel discussion at the end of it which was another way that we felt we could add value you know is if you, you can have this podcast which is made and built and then you can have a discussion afterwards and I think we did that at Auckland Museum so it was another partnership with them and so we've kept using that model in some places like we've had um, collaborations with Tipapa with um, who else the orchestra um different institutions and then we also just go for New Zealand on air funding as well in in partnership with platforms uh, one of the the podcasts which uh, I don't know certainly the one of the, the that's felt the most impactful is uh, getting better it felt like listening to it it felt like I bet you the how big they thought it was versus how much it became might be quite quite a mismatch Do you want to just just Aww. talk about about that because I think it's a a pretty special kind of yeah. groundbreaking piece of work. This is with Emma Espinosa. Yeah, discovering. like I just have to make it to Emma because, you know, it was her generosity. It was, you know, I hadn't worked in Teo Māori before and, and her generosity and sort of bringing me in and guiding me through that. But also her generosity with her life, Do you know, because the idea of getting better was to just really sort of explore her story of being this... You know, she, she was training at the time. She was doing her medical training. So she was training to be a doctor in a system that, you know, is inequitable. And, and the, 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 the tensions in that and the, and the, the difficulty in that and the incredible um, satisfactions that come with, you know, doing that and the sense of responsibility, all of these different things. And we just, you know, we were so lucky. Kay Elmers was at RNZ at the time as the commissioning um, the commissioner and she mentored me through that in so many ways you know in that process again because we we just went around the country and we found these incredible Kaupapa Māori in a lot of cases community-based providers who just you know because of Emma's relationships and because of the work she was doing they let us in and they let us tape and you know Emma as an interviewer did did just extraordinary work you know so that was it took us ages as well because, of course, there was COVID and that changed it into something else, you know, but entirely. But an incredible backdrop for it in many ways. Yeah. Because it, it just served to kind of really... And I mean, Emma's written just so beautifully on the spin-off about being on the front line of that, you know, and being being part of our, our health workforce and what that meant, you know, what that meant for her. Um, 
the the thing about getting better was that in so many ways it it showed me like what is possible when you are telling a personal story that you can you can you know people don't listen to statistics they listen to stories and and I think that was a real penny drop moment for me realizing that you know that helped me it helped me with grand it's helped me with everything we've done since well that that is a pretty effortless way to to segue into Dear Jane, which mm-hmm. is out, if it's not out now, it's out, it's out any day. Uh, a, well, t- t- tell, tell us about the podcast mm-hmm. and, and, and its genesis. So Dear Jane is a survivor's story. You know, it's, it's a survivor's story in all of the complexity and, again, like the challenges and the sadness and the beauty of that. It's a story. It's Jane's story. She... Um, she asked me to help her tell this story of a relationship she had with her youth group leader, which started when um, she was, it actually started when, you know, he, he first, and we go through this in the podcast, he first told her he had feelings for her when um, she was 13 and he he was in his early 20s and um, it was an illegal relationship, you know, it was a secret sexual relationship and it had been, sort of sexual from from very early on in the relationship and it was um, a secret that she carried in one way or another it was an open secret in some ways because they were openly a couple in their sort of wider church community and this was the bit that you know when Jane told me this part of it, this was the bit that I thought, what? You know, how? 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 And so, you know, that was a big question I had going into the project. Um, but it was also a, a guilt that she carried and carries um, long, such a long tale on this. You know, she's she's a mother now. She's in her 40s. And um, and she wanted to address this, you know, to go back and to um, to to go back and to move forward, I think. And I don't want to give away too much about, you know, what actually happens in the series. Um, it's five episodes. But I think for her, you know, a big part of doing it was she wanted to um she wanted people, anyone else who's been in that situation, you know, to to sort of see from her experience that it's not theirs to carry the guilt and the 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 shame of that. And throughout the course of it, you know, we go to experts, we talk to a lawyer, we talk to a psychologist, and we also approach the church because this was a youth leader um, in a church, and you know, we wanted to give them a chance to to respond to that. And of course, the man. The man also, you know, he engaged with us uh, much more so than I thought he would in the process. So he's part of it. He's part of it as well. Yeah, I've listened to the first episode and it's it's incredibly taut, incredibly affecting. And you very quickly clock just how complex the story is going to be in, in multiple different ways. Did Did you... Did you have apprehension about it going in, and and how did you sort of manage the all of the you know all of the complexity, all of the risk, the duty of care, the the sort of legal like there's just there's just so much that's in a 
a project like this that just isn't naturally in yeah. a, a typical narrative podcast? I didn't know what I didn't know, which was fantastic, you know, because I didn't know how complex it was going to get and how, um, how how many different sort of boundaries I personally would be crossing, you know, because there were moments where because, you know, one of the thrusts of the podcast is the idea that um, Jane and Dan will meet and have a discussion. And, you know, when we began the the podcast, we didn't know whether that would happen or whether it was a good idea to have it happen. And if it was a good idea, what would need to happen first? And all of that was stuff that we were reckoning with pretty much in real time as you hear it. You know, so there were moments when I didn't know whether I was advocating for Jane as, you know, just as someone who'd walked beside her for, for it took us a year all up, you know, because by the time you, you get into production and all of that. And certainly in my communications with Dan, you know, there were times when I almost felt like I was um, crossing lines with him as well in terms of asking him to do things or assessing whether he could, you know, or would do certain things. Are you advocating for the podcast or for Jane totally you know for the for the get like it's it, it's a lot of things that have to be weighed a hundred percent and there were one or two uh, you know in terms of these meetings you know one of the things that the psychologist explained to me is that intention is really is of paramount importance when you try and do any kind of reparative work like that and I mean that's well above my knowledge or experience, you know, as, as as a podcaster, you know, I'm not a psychologist. But, you know, I have to, again, you know, acknowledge the spinoff for having a duty of, we had a duty of care protocol, which made dealing with, we were also dealing with other people who were carrying a lot of sadness. Jane's family members agreed to be interviewed. Her best friend from the time agreed to be interviewed. The people who were working on the, the team, you know, who we also had a duty of care protocol for them. And and that I felt helped to keep everybody safe. And I really, you know, our, our producer, Maddie Walker and Amber Easby and Toby Manhire, who's our EP, you know, everybody was involved in, in making this a safe process or as safe as we could make it. But we again, you know, it's sort of happening in real time. So we weren't always sure what people's reactions would be when you when you approach them, you know, in the first instance. Um, and I want to thank Kirsty Johnston as well, who like is doing like some really cutting edge journalism in terms of trauma informed interviewing, you know, giving story sovereignty to people who participate. That was really important for Jane, you know, that this is her story and she would be able to tell her story and that we would it was more collaborative than than I think I'd I'd worked before, you know, in that way. But that's and and also dealing with the sort of aftermath of aftercare when you're interviewing people about traumatic things. I didn't know that. And I it's funny, I think there's more and more of a need for us as a kind of as an industry to get our heads around that actually because there's more unfortunately there's more and more stories coming out about trauma right you know you look at the beautiful work that like Popsock did with the lake you know and and setting standards in terms of how you handle this material I think like Aaron Smale is amazing with with you know um, how he works how he does that yeah well you can really hear that level of sort of care and the kind of intellectual and emotional engagement with the the subject matter on dear jane and uh yeah it's a it's a 
really, really impressive project that I'm, yeah, I, you know, I think you should be very proud of. And Thank you. Yeah, as, as you know, your, your whole career, just talking about it, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot. And um, I really appreciate you coming up to talk about it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm really sorry about that column I submitted late <laughs> for your magazine. I think it was probably 2004, Duncan. It's but quite, it's been playing on my mind. It's quite funny that, you know, this this apologising for a late column when I, I'm i certain, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm editing Real Groove magazine at the time. It's it's no one's first choice. And, it was uh, the back page, though. It was such true. a great piece it, of real estate. Was I was so proud. But you just have to think that at the time... I don't think no one's submitting on time. I was like, I mean, half my you'd have been worried if we were. I right? would. I, I would have. I would have been disturbed. You know, I was much more used to you know like a Kerry Buchanan or a Grant McKellen <laughs> who were like literally working at Real Gro- Groovy at the time. I was just hunting them down. So just the fact that you filed at all was just magical to me. Thank you. I feel a lot better about that now. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.